You're listening to Blissful Prospecting, and today we're talking to Louis Chaco, SDR at Tessian, about prospecting into security, compliance, and IT professionals. One thing that we can do in sales that really holds us back is our assumptions about what we think will and won't work. And we see this a lot with different types of personas, right? There's these blanket rules that I think that we really need to challenge. And when anyone says that, well, hey, why would you want to use LinkedIn when they are not on LinkedIn? And I hear this a lot when people talk about prospecting into more technical folks. So people in IT or development or people in security roles or compliance or, or data. And what I hear is that since these folks are technical, they're not on LinkedIn because they hate, quote unquote, hate LinkedIn, or they don't like talking on the phone because they're introverted, so you shouldn't cold call them. And then, oh, by the way, you should only share features because they're very technical people and that's the language that they talk to. Uh, so all of these assumptions are very wrong <laughs> because they are assumptions. And what I've learned just over the last several years of doing this and helping other folks prospect into these types of groups of personas, these technical folks, is that you should test all your assumptions. If you don't think the phone is going to work, test it. Prove that it doesn't work first. Find a way to make it work. And what we're going to find out from our guest today, Louis Chaco, who is a top SDR at a company that helps with email security, and he sells to these folks on a daily basis. He's prospecting into technical folks. We're going to find out that all of the misconceptions that you may or may not have about this, in fact, are not true. That these people are receptive to prospecting, both on LinkedIn and over the phone. In fact, his phone, uh, the phone, excuse me, is his favorite tool. But before we dig into that, if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, my name's Jason Bay. I'm the host of Blissful Prospecting, and I'm on a mission to help sales reps think outside the script. So when they go to send those cold emails and make those cold calls and are using LinkedIn, you know how are they thinking outside the script and doing something differently to land those meetings with their ideal clients? And my goal is to share those tips and strategies with you in this podcast. So what Lewis is going to talk about today is how he figured out what the day-to-day looked like of the people that he was prospecting into because he's never been a technical professional like this before. He's never done the job of the people that he's prospecting to. He's going to talk about sequencing and how he not only sequences and what that looks like, but how he actually prioritizes the approach based on the persona. And another thing that we're going to dig into as well is LinkedIn. So how he uses LinkedIn to land meetings and videos and what he uses when someone accepts a connection request and all that good stuff. But before we get to the interview, one quick reminder, we're hosting a summer virtual tour called Think Outside the Script. There's going to be 40 sales experts plus quota carrying reps talking about how they prospect. So if you want to learn how to send better cold emails, make better cold calls, uh, how to have a better personal brand, psychology that you can use to prospect smarter in landmark meetings with your ideal clients, I definitely check it out. It's free. It's live. It's spread out over the entire summer, so you're not going to get bombarded with content over a two to, day, uh, two to three day period. Check it out at tour.blissfulprospecting.com. That's T-O-U-R, tour.blissfulprospecting.com. It's free. It's live. Go check it out. I think you really dig it. And let's get to the interview. Sweet. So we met because uh, Morgan Ingram actually suggested that I talk to you 
Um, so Morgan, he came in and, and did a training with you guys last year, I think it was, you mentioned? That's correct, yes. Um, great guy and obviously took a lot away from that training and kept in touch with Morgan as well. Yeah, yeah. He was a past guest on our podcast and uh, yeah, Morgan's a rock star, man. Uh, really good dude. But I want to get into... There's a lot of different angles that we were talking about that we could take this, but one thing that was really fascinating to me and doing a little bit of research on you is it looks like you spent quite a bit of time like through college doing manual labor work. What, what kind of manual labor were you doing? Um, so it, it could be anything from wheelbarrowing, um, cement and, and sand and, and you know anything that a building site requires on a uh, home extension, or it could be, um, I actually worked on my primary school that I um, went to. So building the classrooms and being a part of that uh, was actually quite interesting going back there twice the height and all the rest of it, which is quite an entertaining time. <laughs> One of the weirdest things about, I remember when I was in high school, we call it here. I don't know what you guys even call it. It's primary school for you is high school. Um, age 10 to 16. Uh, yeah, yeah. Secondary. So yeah. So that'd be middle school. I'm thinking of middle school. Yeah. Okay. Cause I remember going back when I was, you know, like 10, 11, 12, like the teachers, and then they looked really tall then. And when I went back, I was taller than all of them. And it was so weird, dude. It was really, really weird. But the manual labor thing is interesting because I used to, what I did in college, actually the summer before college is I worked at a, a mill and it wasn't my dad's mill. He worked at the mill. So much like <laughs> you, it was easy to get the job, yeah, but exactly. dude, it was hard work, man. 60 hours a week, you know, just stacking wood on a cart, essentially. But is there anything you took from doing manual labor that you feel you took with you through the rest of your career? And what I you're think doing the, right now? the main takeaway is you get what you put in. And, yeah. and just like you say, if you need to put in 60 hours to get the job done, then that needs to happen. Sometimes you need to put in the effort. Yeah. Um, it isn't going to do it itself. Yeah, no, I agree with you, man. It's, it's that like blue collar work ethic, dude, where you just, mm -hmm. you just put in the hours. Um, so you studied engineering mm -hmm. in college. How did you, how did you end up getting into sales, man? So this is an interesting question, which I've uh, definitely answered a few times in interviews. So <laughs> um, the, the, the story goes pretty much as um, engineering student for four years, um, spent a lot of time doing sport and things like that, um, and kind of developing the skills you wouldn't necessarily get from an engineering degree. Engineering mm -hmm. is very focused on the numbers and analysis and, I guess, making things more efficient, whether it's uh, an engine or you know, anything like that. What um, kind of, uh, real quick, what kind of engineering was it? Like, what did you see yourself doing? So it was mechanical engineering, but I specialized okay. in the design of um, heat systems or fluid systems. And also, like I say, making things more efficient. So it, it costs less for a business, those kind of things. Um, realized I didn't really get much exposure to people and, and thought, actually, that's probably one pillar in life that I should definitely work on. Um, so spent a year working in customer service for um, a high level uh, complaints team at BT, uh, which is a, a telco provider for, for those of you in the US listening. And um, essentially from that, realized that this was a skill I really should develop and it can move into all walks of life. And although I enjoyed the very people-centric part of it, I wasn't stimulating that technical part of my brain that I just spent four years getting into a lot of student debt over. Um, <laughs> and essentially wanted to combine the two with what would um, what would be the best kind of that school step. is free for you guys. That's why the taxes are so high there. No, not at all. Oh. It, it depends on a, it depends yeah. on a few things. But um, I was the first year that they raised the fees for, um, which I'm not oh, presenting okay. for at all. So 
Um, it's, it's not a touch. <laughs> not, a, not even a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> not at all. Um, yeah. It's just fake money uh, at the moment. Um, yeah. But yeah. So yeah, re- realize I need to kind of combine those two worlds to to get the best out of myself and, and what I've learned so far in my early career. Um, started to work out um, what, what it was that I wanted. Considered engineering, but thought, no, I'm not going to um, get everything that I want out of it. And I think it was a recruiter kind of mentioned sales as as being a kind of avenue to approach when I kind of pitched this idea of where I wanted to take my career. Um, didn't really think too much of it because you don't go to school and think I'm going to become a salesperson. You think, oh, I'm going to be a fireman or a teacher or a paramedic or things like that, like um, those kind of cliches. So um, started to decide that actually sales was was going to stimulate me in the best way. You know, um, a technical product, be able to, to to get my hands into things like that, but equally spend a lot of time around people and then now I'm in my third sale as well. Yeah, that's awesome, man. What what do people think of salespeople in the UK? Is it similar to the <laughs> US and that there's kind of this, it's just now I feel like kind of becoming a profession that young uh, college kids or university graduates want to get into. What, what do people think of salespeople where, where you live? I would say we're certainly slightly behind the US, but in, um, for example, in London or maybe Edinburgh and Glasgow a little bit in Scotland and even Dublin in Ireland, um, there is starting to become more of the, I guess, understanding that it's it's a um, career path that you can take. Um, at, at school, probably not so much, but once you're becoming into kind of university, et cetera, and you start to understand there's so many SaaS businesses out there and it's such a, a, a common job now. It isn't just that kind of cold, cooling, cliched window salesman knocking on your door. It's actually, um, you know, you need to have a degree because you need to have a, a certain level of, um, you know, ed- education to be able to perform in, in a pretty tough environment. Yeah. What's been the most unexpected thing that you found out about becoming a salesperson, like good or bad? I think it's the amount of grit that you need to put into it sometimes, yeah. um, especially when you probably physically and mentally don't want to, but that's your job and you're going to need to, 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 to put the graft in basically. Yeah. That grit dude is, is really interesting. There's actually a lot of science behind grit too, but with prospecting that it can feel like such a repetitive activity sometimes. And there are good and bad days, obviously when you do it, but is there anything that you do to stay motivated? Any routines, any exercises you do anything like that on a regular basis? I think, and this actually is really, I guess, crucial during the the kind of work from home stuff that we're going through mm-hmm. is just your having your personal routine really nailed down when it comes to like pre going to sleep and also first thing in the morning. Um, and that kind of carries me out through that throughout the day. Um, so similar time going to bed, similar time waking up, um, exercise in the morning, all the kind of, like you say, the, the studies and things that, that would talk about the main um, things, you know, like getting vitamin D, going out in the sunshine daily, um, things like that. Um, sticking to that routine really helps during the working day, especially when you feel like you're staying in the same place all the time. Yeah. What about breaks? Do you schedule any breaks for yourself throughout the day? Do you use Pomodoro method or any other kind of thing to sort of manage your workday from a time standpoint and, and like your energy level and that kind of thing? So I kind of manage my time in time blocks on my calendar, which I, I did take from Morgan Ingram, um, color-coded system of, um, mm-hmm. you know, putting the most amount of effort into a, a shorter time slot. So usually when they, those time slots, say, for example, an hour cooler comes to a natural close, I'll take a, a short break, you know, get my face away from a screen for a little bit, 
um, have a breath of fresh air. Um, aside from that, the only structured break I'd have is at three o'clock um, every day. I'd always have a coffee at three. Um, so yeah. So you do take a couple, it sounds like you're pretty intentional, I guess, about making sure that you don't have like a six hour block go by where you've done nothing but meet with people and make calls and send emails that entire time without taking a break. Yeah, I do try to get away from the screen. Obviously, sometimes you can't help it and I I can't be perfect. But yeah, definitely it's, it's about being intentional. Otherwise, you don't know what you're doing with your time. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how much of the energy... Uh, aspect of productivity doesn't get talked about, dude. You know, because today I made a mistake. You're the first meeting of like six hours of meetings I have in a row. And I was looking at it this morning. I'm like, well, why didn't I schedule like a half hour break? <laughs> you know, in the middle of that, like I actually have control over doing or just doing a task that doesn't involve like talking to people, you know? Um, yeah, I'm always curious, man, how people are doing that. But the reason why I wanted to to talk to you is you're selling into an industry that is notoriously difficult uh, to sell into, especially to prospect into. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what it is that you guys sell, who you're selling to and, and uh, that kind of stuff. And we can get started from there. Yeah, sure thing. So to give you an overview of Tessian, um, we, we have an email security platform, which prevents a number of different um, email risks uh, that can happen to a business. Um, Without diving too much into the product itself, um, the, the kind of people who care about this stuff is either heads of information security, um, the CISOs of the world, um, CIOs, um, but equally, depending on the company's size, um, IT um, can, can obviously play a big part in this, and also compliance. So there's quite a spread of people who are involved in making sure that a business stays secure, um, whether it's regulations or because they care about their clients. Uh, and so it's, it's difficult to sometimes make sure you've got the right personas involved. So what do these, if, so let's start from like the beginning of how long have you been at this company? It was about a year. Since so. July. So com- coming up to it. Yeah. 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 Um, did you sell in this industry prior to that? No. So I didn't have any experience selling into security. I'd kind of, I, I knew what AI was and I knew what analytics yeah. was and, and those kind of things, but not really actually a, a full on SaaS security product. So how did you learn about the personas? Like when you were first starting about this, how did you learn about the people that you were going to be selling to? So the, the first way I found out was just um, reading through emails that other reps had, had sent and kind of getting an understanding of how we message to those people to try to get a basic understanding of, of what they go through on the day-to-day. Um, but it did take quite a while to realize that actually to understand what a security professional goes through versus an IT professional, you need mm-hmm. to really immerse yourself in their world um, so whether that's reading books or kind of podcasts that talk around the challenges that they face, um, then you can really distinguish actually what they do on a day-to-day. Why is it important to know what they do to, on a day-to-day basis? I know that might sound like a really obvious question, but why why did you feel it was important to actually know what their day looked like? So if you know what someone's day looks like, then you know what they care about and you can quite quickly work out where the challenges stem from. Um, with that information, you can start that journey towards personalizing your messaging to, to what it is that they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the, you know, we talk about empathy a lot as, as a thrown as a word thrown around right now. And I think that to truly empathize with someone and do more than just, I hope you're doing okay. You know, right now, which is just so stupid when people say stuff like that and they don't know the person, but you have to know like what they actually do 
you know, throughout the day, like what does a day look like? And that's the biggest challenge usually when you're selling something is you haven't done the job of the person that you're selling to. Is there anything else like tactical that you did to figure out more about who these people are outside of like you mentioned looking at emails, listening to podcasts? Is this something that you've documented or written down or interviewed customers? Like, was there anything else to like really figure out like who these people are and what their challenges are and what their day-to-day is like? So our customer success team are really helpful with this, especially mm-hmm. moving into the COVID period. That's when they really stepped up their game in um, really giving us like a, a true first account of what's going on day to day for these security professionals. Um, so hands down, wouldn't have been able to do it without the help of um, the CS team. Equally, we've got our marketing team who do research on these different personas and have started to provide documentation that helps us, which kind of supplements the, um, I guess, version one of, of the information that I'd stored together anyway. Mm-hmm. So with customer success, what? how did you... Um, sorry, I'm getting very tactical here, like very, <laughs> very in the weeds, uh, because this is a problem that a lot of the people that we work with have is they don't really know who their, who their prospects are. Um, so like with your customer success team and marketing team, is your company facilitating those conversations between you guys, or is it just a document you had mentioned that you look at, like, how do you end up getting this information from them? So the end result is a document on our wiki and, and, and kind of, uh, one pages and things like that. But we, we did actually um, fortunately have um, a couple of our customers be interviewed and, and things like that. And also um, we were able to have presentations about their particular stories over the past few few months, et cetera. Um, and so they definitely facilitated that. And I guess you, like any training session and anything, you can sit there, listen to it and think, okay, that's cool. Or you can take some key takeaways and really take kind of your action points about what you're going to learn. Um, and so learning more about the people is, is what I took from those sessions. Got it. And what kind of things are on that document? So like I say, the, the day-to-day things that are going on um, with, with the different personas, um, what's top of mind for them right now, um, equally what success looks like to them. Um, it's quite easy to know what success looks like for an SDR or um, you know, a sales rep. It's very quantifiable on a Salesforce report. But if we think about security or compliance, joining Tessian, I wouldn't have had the first clue as to what their success looks like. Um, what, what did that, if you're able to share, it, like what, what does that sound like? Um, like the success for a security person or a CSO or whatever, you know, pick a persona. What, what does it even sound like on that document? I guess um, the, the obvious couple of points would be making sure there isn't a breach. Um, and yeah. that, that's way bigger than security. So that's kind of um, top of mind for them is, is not having to spend a lot of time working on incidents that have been reported to them. Um, ideally, you know, everything would run smoothly, the lights would stay on and, and the ship would keep moving. Um, mm-hmm. and, and kind of getting to that ideal is, is their primary um, success driver. Got it. So breaches and then in terms of like the day-to-day, how detailed is the day-to-day is it like so-and-so wakes up in the morning and they go to work in this like that marketing persona kind of detail or like what what is the what does the day-to-day sound like the day-to-day i guess is um an outline of responsibilities of of what you'd expect but equally um stuff like where where they'll consume content and and kind of where where they have trust in, in a lot of like peer groups and things like that um actually kind of one random story is that um to get better understanding of of the day-to-day um, the SDR team here at Tessian essentially created a four-minute video 
where we were all different security uh, people within an organization and put together what like a monthly all hands would look like um, as like oh, a fun wow. exercise to, to really, I mean, it's great reading it off a, off a document, but um, practically doing something, you, you remember that a lot more. No, I love that, man. A- another thing I'm curious that you guys do that I've seen really effective is to, co- to create like a document with where you gather messaging. And like, especially between marketing and sales, where marketing has all of this really great data on like what headlines work, what content is the most popular. And then sales has these frontline conversations of prospects share this challenge. They talk about this thing that they want in this way. And you create this file that's got all of this like really good, like copy and paste, you know, kind of stuff that you can literally put into emails and into your talk tracks and things. Do you guys have anything like that? Yeah, we do. And that's kind of evolved and um, changed shape over time. Um, but having a kind of structured, um, either every two weeks or every four weeks, um, zoom call currently, um, and, and really verbally share that is I think more effective than just having a document because you, you get a lot more out of it. It's kind of like if you were to you do a discovery call or if you were to just do it over email, you'd get a lot more out of the same amount of time. Yeah, no, I love that. And I imagined with all of the COVID stuff going on lately that there was some major shifts and that might be a good segue into this next part. Like how have you guys had to, or maybe what was the approach is a better question. Like how did you guys approach shifting if at all, if at all the messaging and like what you were saying in the last two or three months? So when I guess it's probably um, mid, mid March when the pandemic announcement um, kind of hit globally, there was a, a pretty much a, a solid freeze on all outbound activity for, I think it was two days of the end of one week and, and maybe like the start of the next week just to really assess and, and everyone kind of take stock of what's going on. Um, with that, we also have a, a committee, which I'm a part of who share feedback um, on, on what's going on, what's working, what's not. And so when we did start to pick up those conversations, we could provide feedback on a, a transitional COVID style um, sequence that we could use to, to, to move forward so that we were, like you say, leading with empathy, but equally, because this is not necessarily a nice to have product. It's, it's kind of, you do need to have it to, to secure your business depending on where you're at. Um, and so security won't stop. Um, and, and so we, we could still lead with our outbound um, efforts, but we did have to, I guess, tread carefully, especially with different industries, but that was, we didn't know what was right. We, we, we had to learn yeah. as we went along and, you know, definitely made some mistakes <laughs> during that. What, what were some, if you don't mind sharing, what were some of the mistakes? Looking um, back, you guys would have done differently. I, I think um, for me personally, I, I, so I had quite a few nurtures and um, you know accounts that I'd been working for a, a small period of time, maybe kind of three to six months now. Um, and I started calling into them without maybe um, considering their situation as much as I probably should have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right now I've, I've got a, a larger a set of nurture accounts, which I'm, I'm kind of ticking away at. And I know their situation a lot more. And I think because at the time, no one really knew what the situation was. It probably wasn't the best idea to, to kind of touch all the accounts during that time. Yeah. And you were touching those accounts as like to follow up in terms of like getting a sale. It wasn't like checking in to see how they're doing or anything. Yeah. Like that. It was, it, yeah. There, there was an element to it, but obviously I guess being a, an SDR, I did want to hit number and I wanted to Absolutely. kind of push stuff through. So yeah, you know, probably leaning towards the end of a, a tricky month, I'd want to, to see what can drop out of that tree. Yeah. Gotcha. So what is the, if we're stepping back a little bit before we dig into sort of what's working and what isn't, 
what is the general approach to like selling security? You know, um, we talked about this before we hit record, but I mentioned that a lot of people use these fear tactics when they're selling stuff. And I think it's just like really repulsive, but there is also kind of a way to delicately talk about what some of the risks are, I would assume, but what's, what's the general approach to effectively, you know, selling security solutions like this? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. There's so many different angles you can go with that, actually. Yeah. I think that the main thing is, like you say, there are the fear tactics and, and thinking, you know, X, Y, Z problem might happen for your business. You might lose X client base, Y amount of revenue, uh, have to report something, et cetera. Um, and there is, there is the, the, the fear element, which not every prospect feels. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had a CIO just today say, like, bring it on, let, like it, it can happen kind of thing which I guess is a weird extreme to the, to the other end of the wow. spectrum. But um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll see them in the news in the next year. But uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> well, potentially. Um, yeah. But I think the way to kind of harness that fear and, and build on that pain is to really understand the implications for that business. Um, so I'm trained in, in spin selling and implication is a, a big part of that. And I guess with, with that prospect, that there aren't any implications that he can see. And so... Um, you can't really leverage that pain to to book a next step with with him. Whereas um, a company in financial services or a legal firm or, or anything like that, there are implications if if something goes wrong and if they want to solve those, you know, not not let those things happen, then that's that's how you leverage it. Rather than being like, if you don't buy this, you're going to have a big problem. So, do you find that you're having to educate a lot through the prospecting process? Are people aware of what the implications are? It's 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 a bit of both. Re- regionally, this is actually quite dependent, and this is something that, oh, wow. again, uh, p- persona to persona is different. But equally, um, different parts of Europe is different, and they have different. Um, they're kind of set in their ways in different ways, and, and the UK is set in their ways in different ways, and and uh, North America as well. Um, so it it does start with with that. Um, to be fair, so let's uh, let's use an example of something that's recent. If you have a story. Uh, when you were prospecting, what does like what does the initial outreach sound and and look like, or and maybe kind of run us through like what's what's the general sequence or cadence, you know, for getting a hold of a prospect? Sure. So, um, d- dependent on how important we believe them to be at a business, whether it's um, you know they're the CISO compared with um, you know just an IT analyst um, mm-hmm. to kind of put it at two different extremes. Um, we have three different sequences depending on how much time we want to spend with those um, prospects. And that's really important in prioritizing my time because I can only call during a finite amount of the day and I want to make sure that the effort's going into the right places. So um, with someone like a head of security, things like that, I'd be calling them 50% of the steps in in any given sequence. Um, Is that your typical, typically your, your champion? Is it yeah, you, like a head expect, of IT? Yeah. yeah, decision maker, things like that. We, we can champion lower down, but um, with security, you really do need um, a, a strong decision maker to, to, to get that buy-in. And, you know, budgets are always a, a big um, debate as well. So it, it, it does, you do need someone up, up top, really. So when you create these, so you have these three tiers, can, can you share anything more about sort of the thinking behind why you even create these three tiers in the, and to begin with, and what the differences between those tiered accounts might look like? Yeah, so um, the primary difference is the amount of cool steps that, that are going on. Um, uh, LinkedIn drops down a little bit when, when you go towards the lower tiers, but 
primarily the, the most success we see is on the phone and, and definitely where I'm strongest. So it makes sense to put more of my activity into that. Um, in terms of, um, I guess, the reasoning behind it, um, if, if I was calling, say, 50 prospects a day, I wouldn't want to see just as many um, quite junior people within a business as I would target um, the most senior people where it, it would just make a, a faster moving opportunity for, for the AEs that I work with. And so I guess um, if you were uh, selling uh, sales solutions, you wouldn't just target SDRs. You would obviously go in top down approach um, realistically. Yeah. So is it like a tier one, tier two, tier three kind of thing where a tier one is your CISOs and, and those types of C-level people and then a tier two might be your director's head people and then sort of work your way down the ladder from there? Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And different businesses have different. Um, so like around the 500 mark in terms of employees is when you start to see um, the speciali- specializations in IT and security teams. And that's when you can start to prospect more effectively into the different branches within a business. Um, equally, um, data protection officers um, would probably be a, a tier one as well, depending on the company size, because they, they definitely feel that pain, albeit their responsibility is, is somewhat different. And do you reach out to all three tiers at the same time? Or do you, are you more strategic about who you're reaching out to and when? Or So I'll always think um, from the top down first. So if I'm, okay, say I'm picking, there's 10 accounts per territory that I'm going to um, prospect in any given week. I definitely target the, the, the more senior people first. Um, but equally getting an internal referral up, up the ladder is also a good thing, but it, it, it's a longer process. And so it, it, it takes more work. So top down, and then I work my way down through the accounts, and then I'll get a referral up if I can. Is there any other approach around, like, how does messaging change between the three tiers? How do you think about messaging? So this is a good one as well. Um, If you think about this in in a sales world, like the pains that I feel on a daily basis is completely different to what a VP of sales feels. And so trying to understand that actually... um, the admin burden that a lot of IT teams face isn't probably going to be felt as much by the CISO on a day-to-day basis as it is one of his kind of infosec or, you know, IT managers. And so tailoring what their pains and kind of day-to-day challenges are, it becomes even more important when it comes to that kind of messaging, because then they're realizing actually this isn't just an automated email that's getting sent to the whole business. It's actually um, personalized to, to me, my persona and seniority as well to an extent got it so you got three sequences one for each you know sort of tier with different messaging and then how much of the sequence do you typically personalize so roughly speaking it would be the kind of 10 80 10 rule where um the start of the sequence is enough to get them realizing that this isn't um a robot talking to them the bulk of the email being the body with, with the, um, the messaging and then the call to action being different depending on um, the role. Got it. So you're doing the typical, essentially what SalesLoft recommends around personalization, mm-hmm. like first sentence or two, and then the last sentence? Pretty much, yeah. Got it. Um, so what, does, what might the approach be with emails? Do you have a structure that you like using or can you share a little bit more about what what it looks like, what you're thinking about when you write the emails. Cause I know that you have a, have had a large part in the sequences that you guys are using as a company, right? Which is, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool, but anything you can share about emails, how you approach them, how they sound, any other little tips? 
I think that this has changed a lot over the past three months. So it's actually quite a, oh, yeah. a good topic of conversation. Um, pushing on um, getting a meeting maybe three months ago is absolutely not what should be happening because everyone's really on edge and um, prospects just aren't up for those kind of conversations. Um, so making deposits into the accounts and having a much more softer approach of being like, um, you know, I feel you, um, here, here's some content, you know, I, I do solve these problems, but understand that absolutely now isn't the best timing, um, ha has been more successful than, um, you know, pushing for a meeting because we're not, we're not giving them anything from that. Um, but now when people are starting to return to more normality, um, my sequences are more geared towards actually, this is a problem that you've still, you're still facing and we should probably solve it because there's 10 other companies that your competitors are, you know, they're already um, doing this. So you, you should probably be doing that as well. Yeah. It's so what I'm hearing from you is that the things are starting to return a little bit to normal-ish in terms of how you approach prospecting. I would say so. It definitely never yeah. stopped, but I definitely had to think more on the different industries that I was working within. Um, some obviously were hit a lot more than others. So did have to be um, sensitive of that, but now it, it's starting to feel like companies kind of realize what's going on and they're going to have to get on with it. Yeah. I almost don't, I don't think I even really talk about it anymore. Mm. Uh, most of our yeah. clients that we work with, I can't think of any of them unless they're working with an impacted, really impacted industry, even, even mention anything about it or uncertain times or anything like that, you know? Um, but what's uh so if, if like for an email, if you can share an example for a CISO or whatever other persona you want to pick, what does the email sound like? You know, what kind of things are you looking for to personalize? And then what does the body of the email you know, sound like in the call to action? Sure. So um, I guess the, the kind of start of the email would be, um, hi, Jason, we want to help persona like yourself um, navigate to the new normal, for example. Um, and then go into a little bit more about a particular challenge that we solve. Um, and what we don't want to do is just talk about our product and say, we solve this problem. It's more about them. Um, and just changing the wording ever so slightly to, to be, um, this is something that people like yourself are, are facing, that, that kind of um, scenario. Um, and then a couple of lines or just, you know, enough for someone to just read on a phone. So like a couple of bullet points about some of those key challenges that we're currently helping um, similar um, companies with and then the call to action would be a combination of either i'm interested to hear more thoughts um, and, and kind of get a conversation going and get a two-way conversation going or do you have 15 minutes free in the next couple of weeks or um with outreach we can also set it up to be like weekdays from now one or two and then and then have it that way as well yeah and then have it automatically put it in there so it sounds like the you're very sort of problem centric with your with your messaging it's sure. we talk to people like you a lot and they typically have these challenges right now and ways that we support companies are in these areas and you make it about the challenges that you fix and not about the dashboards or the security or the compliance or like anything like that. Yeah. Those all things will come pretty early within any kind of sales process and mm -hmm. definitely going to talk about the really attractive dashboards and, and all the rest of it that, that we've got. But leading like i've been in a position where leading with with lots of features doesn't really correlate to to more results and so thinking more about them actually is is a better way of uh, empathizing with them especially now mm -hmm. yeah, and that's interesting because i 
you know, I was just on a sales call a couple of weeks ago, actually, with a company that has these solutions for, I mean, they're for IT folks, more developers, but they were so feature focused in their messaging. I was trying to talk to them about that. Like their thinking was, well, they're really technical people. They care about the dashboards and like the specific uh-huh. stuff. And I'm like, well, but they don't know what your product is. And you're speaking to them in a language that they don't really understand. Like the universal language in business that people understand is when you talk about something they're struggling with. And then you talk about a transformation, right? How it could be different, you know? So that's really interesting. So, um, so you send the emails and I'm sure this depends on the tiers too, but what does a typical sequence look like? Like how many, how many emails are you sending? How many times are you calling someone, you know, before you, or how many touches on social before you give up? And like I said, I, I'm assuming that probably changes depending on the, on the persona as well. That's correct. And so um, at the moment, running at around, I think it's just over 20 steps. Um, in, yeah. So, um, but really want to make sure that we penetrate those accounts. Um, and, you know, if you call someone five times and five different times during the day, um, you, you probably still won't get hold of them. It, it's only when you kind of get towards 10 plus touch points that you're, you're kind of really getting towards um, getting, getting a response from people. Um, with the highest tiering, it's, it's 50% calls. And then about a 25% split between um, social and, and email, um, starting with um, follows and engagements and then moving into a connection request. Then obviously, if they accept, we move into video messaging, things like that. With the lower down tiers, um, it's it's less about the calling and it's it's probably about a third split each um, and less steps in, in, the, um, in the lower tiers. Um, and then I think tier three is... is only one or two calls because um, don't want to spend a huge amount of time calling into them. Yeah. So it's mostly, I guess the lower the tier, the more automated. Pretty much. Yeah. And more numbers game. You kind of start to play with those kinds of things. It's about making noise in the accounts. Um, you know, they could also forward those emails and kind of speak about it, mention it, go on our website, sign up to an event that they've seen on our website, things like that. So it's about generating noise and I'm really feeling confident that after you know, 60 days of sequencing someone, you feel confident that you've worked that account and now you can move on to the next, next Yeah. One. For your tier ones, what's the approach is, do you email first? Do you do social first? Do you call first? Like, how do you personally like to do it? Cause there's so many schools of yeah. thought. Like I like picking up the phone and just calling and just seeing if I can get someone and then I can leave yeah. a voicemail. And then I do usually a triple touch, you know, I'll connect on LinkedIn and then I'll send an email, but what's, what's your preference and, and why? Preference is definitely cool first. Um, yeah, I just more success on the phone and, and I kind of also, when I, when I do the first call, I also view their profile and have that in front of me, um, extract any information I want. And I, I feel in the best position to, to work that prospect then. Um, but I've definitely tested different methods before, but just feel like calling is the best if you send an email first but they bounce because you've got the email format wrong then i'm not going to automatically get that task in and i have to spend effort trying to trying to get that information out at least if i call them first i know what's going on yeah i love it so you're calling first and do you leave voicemails or no i actually had a discussion with someone in my team about this today i've i've spent a long time not leaving voicemails just because i feel like there's a hundred other salespeople trying to also contact IT all the time. They're one, probably one of the most prospected people. Um, and so I, I've always felt like if I can't leave a good enough voicemail, then it's not worth doing it. Um, but saying that I've used voice notes and video on LinkedIn for a fair amount of time now, so I could probably translate that into uh, a voicemail. So I, I feel like I want to do it again now. 
I'm kind of ready for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting with voicemail, especially with IT, because I don't know about what your experience is, but most of them tend to have, I've noticed, a uh, voicemail transcription that gets emailed to them. So they see this transcription. And if you do a good voicemail and kind of mm-hmm. do it in the format of an email almost, it's at least a notification. It's another touch, you know, that they're going to get that mm-hmm. when you get a missed call from someone, I don't know. It's like, especially if you're using a dialer, let's say, and it's like not your cell, your personal cell, or it's a certain area code or whatever. People usually don't recognize the number, you know, when, when you call them, but interesting. So you mentioned LinkedIn. I know this is a big thing that you're doing right now. How, how does LinkedIn play? And again, the thinking, the thinking behind this is, you know, a lot of people in it, people say, well, they're not on LinkedIn. So what, why do you choose to use LinkedIn and, and how is that working for you guys? I think the primary reason for, for using it is because everyone personally has their own preference in how they want to be contacted mm-hmm. or how they want to talk to their friends, like everything. Everyone has their own preference. Some people will prefer to speak on the phone and do things that way. Some people will prefer to have an email that gets tossed away, but some people do enjoy um, using social, especially LinkedIn. And so... Um, the main reason for using LinkedIn is to target those people who actually, you know, they're big personalities within the security space or, you know, they're involved in a lot of different groups on LinkedIn. And so um, it's important to make sure that you're catching all of the people in the place that they want to be caught. Yeah. You mentioned something really important there and it's, you don't know what the person's, you know, communication preferences are. The other thing with LinkedIn too, is that most people have email notifications on. So when they get messaged something, they get emailed it as well. Um, but so, so what kind of stuff are you guys doing with LinkedIn? Um, so we've ran through a lot of, um, voice note testing and, and did a lot of that throughout the, the SDR team. But right now, um, like, like a lot of companies, to be fair, it, it's about using, um, video. Um, currently we haven't rolled it out fully across the entire team. It's, we're just testing it with our first degree connections and using that as a, a method of, um, generating, um, leads. And is that the first touch? So it would be you'd expect someone to from a sequence point of view they're probably like five six seven steps in by this point okay um, and do you have it as a task in your sequence to if the person's been sent two or three emails you've called through three times and they've been non-responsive then you go to linkedin yeah but equally if i get a connection request um let's say on a on a friday or or something like that i'm probably gonna sit on it for a couple of days the task might not hit me on outreach but i'm still gonna send a video after you know maybe three or four days depending on um, priorities. Also with sending videos, I've definitely found from a work rate point of view, doing them all in one go works a lot better than just doing it as outreach tells me to. Um, so it's, it's a kind of mixture between the two really. So with videos, do you pre-record all of them on your phone and like save them to your camera roll or something and then send them all at once? Is that what so you I, mean by? I, 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 I will record them all together and send them as I'm, I'm going. So I feel like it's more kind of um, conversational um, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of investigating the prospect when I'm there, recording the message, making sure it's okay, sending it and kind of doing, you know, 10, 12 in an hour, depending on how, how quick I can get through them. Okay. So you're looking at, hey, who's everyone that's in a sequence right now? And uh, so you pull that up on outreach and then you pull those people up on LinkedIn on your phone and you'll just go through them individually from there. And then it feels yeah. really organic because you are literally going under their profile, getting a sense of who this person is. And then you're 
sending a video through LinkedIn or are you embedding like a Vidyard or something, or is it through the LinkedIn app that you're recording the video? Yeah, through through the application at the moment. Yeah. Um, I've I've since because I've been kind of active within the the video space on LinkedIn. I've had a few different companies prospect me just as an SDR, being like, "Oh, we've got this great video platform, etc." And I've I've been sharing those videos around the team because it's quite a good point to learn from. Um, yeah. But yeah, at the moment, just natively on LinkedIn. Well, I think it's good too because a lot of those other ones, when you click on it, it takes you out of the out of LinkedIn onto the other page, and it's yeah. it doesn't feel like much, but yeah, I have a marketing background too. And that's the, you know, the science behind conversion is the more steps you make someone do typically the least, less likely they are to, you know, exactly. uh, actually follow through and take the action that you want them to take. One, one thing I do like about the, um, the kind of, uh, the link, although all links I've seen just look weird. Like there's just like a thousand characters, this massive long URL that being in security now, I'm like, I don't want to click a dodgy link, but I can see a preview I know that the guy is holding up a whiteboard with my name on it and he's waving. So I know he's friendly and, and all the rest of it, but I'm still just like, it's not as, as good an experience as it could be. Yeah. By the way, that tactic, I still do that. And people give me shit for it. Like the putting the name on the whiteboard. If you got a better way to show someone, because people have gotten so many mass videos that they don't click on them anymore. And a lot of prospects comment, they've told me the reason why I click the videos is saw my name on there. You uh-huh. know what I mean? So I, I think that's a really great tactic and it works well. Um, one, one other uh, question that I want to ask you before we take off here is if you could start over your SDR career, is there anything that you would do differently in the first two or three months of learning how to do this stuff, knowing what you know now? So many different ways of going down that. I think that for me, um, the persona piece um, as well as really having a um, an, a good understanding of different sales methodologies would probably be the two most important things for me. Looking back, um, if I if I really understood spin and straight line, uh, but equally things like Sandler and Challenger, um, know, knowing those like core fundamentals that I tried and tested, combined with really understanding what a prospect goes through, and and the differences between the different prospects within an account, are probably the two most lethal combinations for a new SDR, I would say. Straight line. That's Jordan uh, Belfort, huh? That is correct. Um, good old trust buckets and making sure that um, someone you know, trusts you. It's so crazy. He gets so much shit for, obviously, he scammed tons yeah. of people out of hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever. But the straight line selling thing is is like really, really good. Like The way he yeah. describes that in the system, it's really, really applicable to, to B2B sales for sure. Um, so, so your thing is you would want to learn more about methodologies and get a better sort of global perspective of like, how can I be what I call like methodology agnostic and like mm-hmm. take the best pieces of everything? Exactly. Um, cause it isn't one size fits all. And so yep. knowing like different ways of doing things and being able to adapt, especially working in different territories, people are going to react differently. So spin works better in, um, like Europe, whereas straight line has been, more successful for me in North America because that trust element is so much more obvious. Um, objections are a lot more covert in Europe and you kind of don't know really why someone's objecting. So you have to dig a little bit more. Um, straight lines really helpful for that. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Um, any other words of wisdom, anything else that you've learned in your journey that you want to share that we didn't cover? 
I think we've covered a lot to be fair. I'm just trying to wrap through my head. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, um, yeah, I, I yeah. think that's everything from a words of wisdom point of view. No, all good, man. Well, before you take off, you know, I, I appreciate you coming on, dude. This is super cool. And thanks for kind of pulling back the curtain on on what you're doing and, and how you guys are succeeding with, with prospecting. Uh, where do you want people to connect with you? What do you want people to check out? Um, so the easiest place to find me is, is obviously LinkedIn. Um, so just Lewis Chorco. Um, once you've found me, connect with me with a personalized message, just so I know you're not just going down the list and here and connect, uh, and then we'll be in touch. That was a fun one. One of my biggest takeaways from this is really taking the time to know your prospects day to day and doing the thing he recommended. Do you have some sort of regular meeting every two to four weeks, even if you have to coordinate that yourself and talk to other SDRs, other AEs, people in your marketing department, customer success, anyone that's handling fulfillment and like working with these customers and share what you're learning. If you heard someone talk about a problem in a certain way that you think would be cool to share, share that in the meeting. If you found out something that really, really resonates with that they tend to, your prospects get very excited about, share that in the meeting. That's my biggest takeaway. Before you take off, if you could leave a quick review on iTunes, just a quick, honest review of what you thought and what you think of the Blissful Prospecting Podcast, I'd really appreciate it so we can continue growing the show. Uh, We do this. It takes a lot of time and effort, and it's free to you. And one thing I'd really appreciate to get more guests on like Lewis is just a quick review, just an honest review of what you thought. And you can do that by going to iTunes, typing in Blissful Prospecting, or you can go to blissfulprospecting.com slash iTunes. Either one will get you right there. Leave a quick review. I'd really appreciate it. And uh, that is all for today. I'll talk to you soon.